Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. I, as always, am your host, Simon, as what happens on this channel is Callum has written me a script. I have it in front of me right now, The Disappearance of Amy Lynn Bradley. I think Callum said to me that this one isn't actually about a murder, it's about a disappearance. So it's a bit more mysterious uh, and maybe less concrete. But those do really well. Like, I see other shows and they're like, we never find out what happens. And I'm like, well... Uh, that th- those always do great. So uh, maybe this one will also do great. Welcome to the show. Also, thank you to everyone who's leaving a review for this. If you're, I mean, if you're watching this, it, it's not really you don't review it other than giving it a thumbs up. But this also goes out as a podcast. Uh, if you are listening as a podcast, if you've left me a review, I see them coming in on Apple Podcasts. There's like hundreds of them now, maybe even a thousand. And I'm like, that's incredible. Thank you, everybody. And everyone says super nice things. So uh, that's really nice. I'm glad you like the show. I know it's a, it's a little bit different. So uh, let's just jump into it, shall we? I, I said Callum writes the script. I shall read it, maybe add some thoughts if I have any. And uh, Jen is our video editor and audio producer. I, I guess that those those the right terminology. I don't know. But she makes it look nice and sound nice afterwards. So thank you, Jen. And let's just jump in. In 1998, that's the day I started the UK equivalent of high school, secondary school, as we call it. Ron and Ivor Bradley, along with their two children, Brad... (laughs) Thanks for that fun fact to start us off, Simon. Brilliant. Uh, Brad and Amy departed on the holiday of a lifetime, an all-expenses-paid week-long cruise around the Caribbean. But what started as a happy family vacation quickly descended into every parent's worst nightmare. Amy disappeared, vanished without a trace, as the boat approached the sun-soaked island of Curacao. The family's frantic attempts to find her came up against resistance from a litigious cruise operator and eventually became drenched in years of mysterious reports and conspiracy theories. Today we'll be diving into that sea of speculation to see if we can come up with some pearls of truth. Yeah, I I remember more about this because before we write these, you know, Callum and I have a little chat about it. And uh, Callum was saying there is so much sensationalism and so many crazy conspiracy theories around this one that he's done his best to kind of cut through the nonsense and see if we can actually figure out, I mean, not if not what happens, at least what definitely didn't. Because, you know, like as always, whenever someone's like, it was ghosts, the ship was haunted, it was the Bermuda Triangle in sea, I'm like, no. No, it wasn't those things. Let's uh, let's see if the police can do some actual police work and figure it out. We'll look at the circumstances around Amy Lynn Bradley's disappearance, weigh up the leading theories, and hopefully debunk some of the nonsense along the way. Yeah, exactly what Callum and I discussed. In the end, it's up to you to decide whether this is a tragic death blown up into a wild fantasy or a horrific kidnapping, which might well still be resolved. Okay. The setting for today's case is the imposing luxury ocean liner Rhapsody of the Seas. The Royal Caribbean internationally owned ship stands an impressive 11 stories tall. Uh, Aren't those called, are they called decks on a ship? 11 decks? But it might, maybe it's got more than 11 decks. That doesn't feel like it's so many decks. And these ships are usually massive. But I've got another channel called Mega Projects. We covered, I think it was Royal Caribbean's largest cruise liner. And that thing was absolutely insane. Just like mind boggling. Go check that out if you uh, if you fancy a little uh, bit of extra video from me. Back in March 1998, the classy cruise ship was just one year old, scheduled to sail from the Puerto Rican city of San Juan to the island of Curacao in the Dutch Antilles. Among the 2,435 guests on board were the Bradley family from Virginia. The father, Ron, won the trip through his insurance sales job, along with around 35 other agents from around the U.S. The prize only covered the cost of the trip for him and his wife, Ivor, but the couple decided to treat their kids as well. 23-year-old university graduate Amy and her 21-year-old brother, Brad. The couple forked out an additional $2,000 to turn their getaway into a dream family vacation, booking Brad and Amy on a flight down to San Juan that arrived shortly after theirs. After the family arrived in paradise on the 21st of March, Amy bought some postcards to send to her friends back home. This was still in the technological dark ages, mind you, and she wrote on one, Hey girl, it's gorgeous here. We leave for Aruba tomorrow. I'll be home Saturday at 10am. It's interesting how she gets in that, you know, just the calendar and schedule in detail on the postcard. God, I remember postcards. And every holiday I'd go on with my parents. They always be like, you got to send postcards to your grandma and to 
this person and to that person. We're like, oh, for God's sake. I have to spend like half a day of holiday writing postcards. Why? Thinking about it now, maybe my parents just wanted some peace while we were on holiday. That kind of makes more sense. I'm definitely going to make my kids write postcards. Amy was ecstatic now, but she had been skeptical about the cruise at first. Despite being an accomplished swimmer, the idea of being surrounded by open water terrified her. It took a lot of convincing to get her to come along. Yeah, I mean, because you can be a good swimmer all you want, but if you fall off a cruise ship, you're kind of screwed. After a day exploring Aruba, the Bradley clan boarded the ship together and set sail once again. Later that day, the family went to dinner together, a black tie event to one of the ship's classier restaurants. On the way inside, they queued up to have their picture taken by a photographer posted at the doorway. I've always wondered this, and I'm sure anyone who's ever been on a cruise will automatically know the answer. But if you're on a cruise ship, right, and they've got and it's all inclusive, and they've got all these different restaurants, wouldn't you just go to the best restaurant all the time? Like, I mean, if there was a place that is like, what, for me, I guess it depends on what your personal preferences is. But if it's like, yeah, there's a burger place, which is kind of like McDonald's, or there's a glorious steakhouse, I'd be like, well, seeing as this is basically a communist utopia, I'm just going to eat at the glorious steakhouse all the time. (laughs) So what are you having for breakfast? Another glorious steak. Welcome to the cruise. Little did they know those would be the last pictures that they ever had taken as a family. Gone Without a Trace The Bradleys continued drinking together late into the night, joining a calypso party at one of the nightclubs on board. Perhaps not impressed with the caliber of cruise ship entertainment, Ron and Ivor called it a night and went back to the shared family suite at around 1.30am. Amy and Brad decided to keep partying. They befriended a group of musicians from the ship band Blue Orchid and went with them to the Viking Lounge and other of the ship's nightclubs. Ron woke up at 2.45am and struggled to get back to sleep for worrying. Brad had gotten into a bit of trouble for dancing with a married woman earlier, but managed to avoid getting his teeth knocked out. His dad wanted to make sure that this was still the case, so he went up to the Viking lounge to check in on the kids. I I, I don't know. Like, how old was this guy? Like, 22? I feel a bit, I feel a bit weird if my dad came to check on me as a 22-year-old. I'd be like, Dad, what are you doing? I'm fine. I'm 22 years old. I can handle myself. Although maybe this guy couldn't. But still, I'd be like, even if I can't handle myself, please don't come. <laughs> we know exactly what time the two of them returned to the family suite, thanks to the electronic door system. It showed that Brad arrived back at the room at around 3.35am and Amy followed about five minutes later. The two siblings then sat on the balcony together, chatting about life, before Brad turned in for the night. Amy stayed in her lounge chair on the balcony, wanting to sleep off her seasickness in the fresh air. Seasickness. <laughs> Callum hasn't put it in, in quotes, but I, I, I did myself. You're welcome. Disappearance In the early morning, restless dad Ron woke up once again, noticing that Amy was out sleeping on the balcony. He later told papers, I could see Amy's legs from her hips down. I dozed back off to sleep. The balcony door was closed because it hadn't been opened. I would have gotten up and closed it. About 6am, something woke me again. I got up, and the balcony door was open about 14 to 16 inches, and Amy wasn't on the deck. And I had a little funny feeling at that time, because it was unlike her to be up that early in the morning. Ron was right to worry. His daughter's cigarettes and lighter were missing, and she hadn't left any notes, as was her custom, or taken her ID. It did seem that she had changed her clothes before leaving. Ron decided to look for Amy by himself, careful not to wake his wife or son as he slipped out the door. He did a sweep of all the places they had been the night before, along with the top deck, certain that a drunken Amy must have just wandered off somewhere and fallen asleep. If you're wandering off somewhere and falling asleep, like on a bench or something, I'd rate that as being, you know, very drunk. Not really, 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 really drunk. When that didn't work, he searched around the rest of the common areas, but the more places he checked, the more he began to panic. Eventually, he returned to the cabin and shook Ivor and Brad awake. They could see the panic in his eyes. Amy was gone. Delayed response. The family quickly set about alerting the ship's security chief, Lou Costello, but it became clear that he was more about protecting the general party atmosphere than the lives of his passengers. Uh-oh. Convinced that something bad had happened to Amy, they begged for a PA announcement and a search of the boat. But Costello and the team at the purser's office just told them that it was too early in the morning for a shipwide announcement. Besides, their daughter was probably just shacked up in someone else's cabin. She would turn up eventually. The Bradleys weren't convinced, and time was running out. The ship had already pulled into the canal at Curacao, and the staff were scared to lower the gangplanks any minute now. Mrs. Bradley begged them to postpone until a proper search could be conducted, but the ship's officers refused. They had excursions planned, and the show must go on. Instead of locking down the ship, they opened the doors, and over 2,000 of the passengers flooded out to explore the port town, with Amy 
or her attacker potentially among them. After repeated pleading, Costello finally agreed to issue an announcement at 7.50 a.m., but it was too little too late. The few passengers still on board, those with deadly hangovers from the night before, wouldn't be much help. They just heard a quiet voice over the intercom, Will Amy Bradley please come to the purser's desk? There was no red alert passenger missing, just a polite little request for Amy to present herself in the hope that she was among the aforementioned tequila's zombies still sleeping off the Calypso party. And to be very fair to there the the cruise people who i think they probably should have done more already but it would be very easy to assume it's like yo this is a big party cruise ship you said yourself she was pretty drunk it's not unreasonable to think that she could be sleeping somewhere else but still uh i feel you should i mean hindsight's 2020 you know you probably should have done something to be fair to them that's probably how it goes down 99 percent of the time but surely you should err on the side of caution yes i agree although then a cruise might just be a constant stream of announcement for people who are because these boats are absolutely massive there's 2500 people on board it could just be a constant stream of like shopping center announcements about missing kids and stuff but maybe that's why they do them so regularly and it actually makes sense because it's really bad when people get kidnapped because, of course, Amy never responded to the call, or this would be a pretty pointless episode. <laughs> yeah, be like, girl goes missing on a cruise ship, is easily found. This has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. Her family were getting desperate at this point, and the crew never offered much respite. Just before noon, Amy's mother pleaded with Captain Kajeltil Gerstart to distribute a picture of the missing girl around the ship, but he turned her down, saying, I cannot do that, I will not alarm the passengers. Despite the situation, you know, being pretty f- alarming it's like dude she is definitely missing at this point time to do more at first it could be like ah she's gonna turn up and then very clearly when she hasn't turned up then it is time to do the red alert thing come on Royal Caribbean's company policy clearly prioritized good time Calypso vibes over all else. It's thought that the crew acted so nonchalant at first because Brad had mentioned that Amy talked about going out to buy cigarettes before the two of them went to bed that morning. This passing comment convinced the staff Amy was just out wandering alone, perhaps planning on heading down to shore by herself to get the smokes. But the hours ticked on and she never returned. It was past midday by the time the crew lifted a finger to make some real progress on the hunt. From 12.15 to 1pm, Captain Gerstart had the staff searched through all 999 rooms, restaurants, leisure decks, and storage lockers, but to no avail. The Bradleys went down into town to see if they could find Amy, but they were warned by the captain that the ship wouldn't be waiting around for them. Whether they were on board or not, Rhapsody of the Seas would be setting sail that evening. They had to choose between searching for Amy in town or continuing on the vacation. It's quite hard to focus on finding your missing daughter when a bunch of idiots are having a limbo party in the background, so the Bradleys decided to stay. I think that is probably the smart move, because look, if she shows up on the ship, someone is she's going to be like, yo, family, why are you still on this island? I was just hanging out on the ship and no one could find me for whatever reason. But if she has gone to shore and she hasn't got back on the ship, then they need to stay there to try and find her or, you know, alert the local authorities or something. Honestly, though, you guys have got to be on the same page as me. I'm guessing right now that it is a very strong possibility that she fell overboard, like at some point into the water and drowned or something like that right or i mean if it's murder someone pushed her but there's no indication of that maybe she was just quite drunk and and fell off the side of the boat i don't know that's that's kind of where i'm my thinking's at at the moment what i would definitely want them to do is when the people get back on the boat run a manifest and see if anyone's missing while the Bradleys descended the gangplank to continue the search on land, Captain Gerstart made a call to Royal Caribbean HQ. No, he wasn't asking them to send choppers and a crack team of detectives. The only support the captain wanted was a company lawyer who flew down the very next day. The company then informed the Bradleys that they could have no more contact with the captain nor crew unless the lawyer was present. Perhaps sensing that they might have royally fucked up, Royal Caribbean just developed a theory and stuck to it. Amy Lynn Bradley had tragically fallen over the railings of a family suite balcony earlier in the hours of Tuesday day and died at sea not unreasonable though to be fair search at sea it was probably the simplest explanation after all amy wouldn't have been the first person to slip and fall off the side of a ship after a night of drinking but does that really add up with her fear 
of the ocean. Her family reported that she was reluctant to ever go near the railing without holding on to someone, and at chest height, she'd have to have been standing on some furniture to tumble over. Regardless, a search of the ocean got underway 24 hours after Amy disappeared. The Dutch Antilles Coast Guard committed three helicopters to the search, drafting in a radar plane, British Royal Navy ship, and a host of small cargo and fishing boats to help. Five days of searching no results. If Amy really had fallen overboard, or perhaps jumped willingly, as cruise officials suggested at the time, her body would never be found. FBI search. Wow, now we're kicking it up again. The Bradley family refused to buy the suicide angle and maintained that she was either still on the ship or had been taken off it against her will. The accident angle's still there. I know it's a lot, you know, the thing is, what was it, chest height and that she was afraid to go near it, but I still think that is maybe the Occam's razor here. Isn't it? Anyone else still with me on this one? Ron was adamant that the sliding balcony door was closed at 5.30 and then open at 6, meaning his daughter had left the cabin sometime between. Unfortunately, the electronic lock only logged entries into the room, not exits, so there was no hard evidence to prove this for sure. But what we do have is a witness statement from just after 5.30am. A college freshman named Crystal Roberts reported, I saw Amy and the band's member walk over and up to the next deck above us, and about 10 minutes later, he came walking around by himself. If this statement is accurate, the bassist from the band apparently had gone back to the Viking lounge with Amy. Could he or someone else have hurt her? And would the company rather just shut up than admit its dubious hiring practices? Amy's family decided to go to the U.S. Embassy with concerns, where the officials alerted the FBI. Um, okay, so this is definitely an interesting lead. I would say, though, they're on a cruise. She doesn't know, this Crystal Roberts lady doesn't know Amy. I mean, other than, I imagine, briefly meeting her at a nightclub. Could she really be sure of IDing her? I mean, we should absolutely investigate this basis dude anyway, and I'm assuming the FBI are going to get on that pretty sharpest, but it's not, you know, it's not an airtight eyewitness. There's honestly no such thing as airtight eyewitnesses. On Wednesday evening, Ron Bradley's employer, owner of the insurance company who had gifted him the ill-fated trip, flew down to Curacao to offer his help. The millionaire CEO chartered a private plane to take Ron and Iva to the island of St. Martin, the next port of call for the Rhapsody. Wow, this is a good dude. They once again boarded the ship on early Thursday morning and demanded a meeting with the captain. They told Gerstard that the FBI would be coming to investigate, but the company lawyer informed them that the U.S. feds had no jurisdiction on the ship. It was registered in another nation and currently in foreign waters. No offense to any lawyers out there, but it's because of a bunch of guys like this that people hate the profession. Yeah, I mean, also Royal Caribbean. I, I, come on. <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. I, I, what have you got? I guess they're like, well, they could prove that we did something wrong, but it's like priorities, guys. Priorities. I kind of, it's not. The lawyers do, are doing what they're doing at the behest of Royal Caribbean. Royal Caribbean are the dicks here, allegedly. The FBI would need the approval of the company to come aboard, and Royal Caribbean International was in full damage control mode. After exhaustive negotiations, they finally agreed to let two investigators on board, finally, good, dressed in plain clothes to avoid alerting the other passengers. Well, it'd be a bit weird if they were just walking around in FBI windbreakers and be like, please don't. Please just wear your suits. <laughs> who were still dancing and sipping margaritas, mostly oblivious to the severity of the situation. The FBI never managed to make much progress during the search, as they noted that Amy's ID was left in the cabin, suggesting she never planned to be away for long. Interestingly, reports vary on whether or not they considered suicide a viable theory. A spokesman from Royal Caribbean International later came forward to say that the FBI had found the balcony furniture arranged near to the barrier, footprints on the table, and signs someone may have sat on the railing. The Bureau themselves responded that they never would have disclosed such information to the company, but declined to refute the information outright. That's very bizarre. <laughs> Glomar, dear. I can, I can neither confirm nor deny. Why? Just... Okay, so they'd never have divulged the, divulged the information. So it seems like Rock Caribbean just lying about that, allegedly. They also eventually discovered that the search which Captain Gerstart ordered on the day of the disappearance was far less extensive than he claimed. The crew had only searched the common areas and crew quarters, not wanting to disturb any passengers still left on board. Had Amy been concealed in one of those areas, they would have missed her. In any case, the second search hadn't found any sign of Amy either. They, her family were forced to fly back to Curacao and continued desperately wandering the streets, hoping they might bump into her, that it all might still be a big misunderstanding, and she would show up with a pack of cigarettes and a wild story. Yeah, at that point, I'm, we have gone beyond just misunderstanding at this point. You got to, you're clutching at straws there. The FBI are involved. They've searched a cruise ship in international waters. Shit got real already. No such luck. On Saturday the 28th of March, the Bradley clan was forced to fly home 
one member short. So we have a cruise company pushing the man overboard angle, more worried about their reputation than passengers' well-being, while the family is convinced that their daughter was the victim of foul play. The Bradleys grew increasingly convinced that someone employed by the ship may have been to blame, but were frustrated at every turn by the litigious brick wall set up by RCI. Occam's razor might side with the company on this one, but there are plen- but there's plenty of peculiar evidence that suggests that there might be more sinister forces at work than just plain bad luck. Okay, because I'm definitely still on the Occam's razor. You know, if there was a sliding scale, I'd say I'm, right now maybe 80% it's Occam's razor. She fell overboard or jumped overboard and 20% foul play. But maybe, uh, maybe something will convince me otherwise. Let's see. Alistair Yellow Douglas. Let's return to the international sleuth's favorite suspect in this case, the bassist in the ship's band who was reportedly seen with Amy after she left the cabin. This was Alistair Yellow Douglas. Brad reported that the balding bassist had tried to dance a bit too close to Amy earlier in the night, and she was forced to repeatedly shimmy on away from him. When questioned by the FBI, Yellow stated that he and Amy had danced until about 1am when she gave him the cold shoulder and sent him on his way. A polygraph test suggested no reason to doubt him, but if that was the case, then who had Amy been spotted with at 5.30am? Also, polygraphs famously unreliable. Even stranger was the fact that Yellow seemed to have knowledge of Amy's disappearance before it was even announced to the ship. At around 9am, Brad Bradley... Is that really the dude's name? Was his, is his name Brad Bradley? I mean, I don't want to laugh at the serious point in the story, but that is a name. Uh, was standing on the top deck, keeping an eye out for his sister in the morning crowds, when the bassist approached him. Yellow told Brad that he was sorry about what had happened to his sister. At the time, he just shrugged it off as a bit of polite support. It wasn't until Yellow was identified as a person of interest that he looked back on the incident in a new light. How had Yellow known anything was wrong with Amy? Why apologize when she was expected to turn up at any moment? Sure, Yellow might have just been referencing the PA announcement an hour earlier or some rumors floating around the crew, but it was strange nonetheless. Ah, either that's really dumb if he did it like without it being common knowledge. I just think the rumor around the crew would probably be, what's up? I'm so skeptical. I just don't assume it's murder immediately. <laughs> Maybe I'll be a rubbish police officer. I'm always like saying, like, cover police, do your job. It comes up often in casual criminals. Like, why are we overlooking this? Why are we overlooking this? I'm like, oh, I would overlook it as well. My bad. Let's carry on. It's important to note that the FBI ruled out Yellow as a suspect, but the suspicious sighting and conversation kept him firmly in the scopes of internet sleuths for decades after. In fact, in recent years, some dubious reports started emerging that his own daughter claimed he was in possession of pictures of Amy and was obsessed with her. But until that sort of thing is substantiated outside of the world of random internet rumors, we can't really take it too seriously. Yet don't take that at all seriously. That is one of those things that we should ignore because there's no proof for it whatsoever. And yeah, I'm just, that is, I'm very skeptical. The Waiters Yellow wasn't the only member of staff who drew the suspicion of the Bradley clan in those early days. Apparently, several of the waiters had been making Amy feel incredibly uncomfortable during the first few days on board, and it went beyond a bit of sleazy flirting. On the night before her disappearance, Amy and Brad left the restaurant to head to the ship's casino. While the two of them were striking rich on the slot machines, their parents stayed in the restaurant to share some drinks with Ron's colleagues. As the couple sipped on champagne, they were approached by one of the wait staff. It was a young man that had been giving Amy the creeps since they lifted anchor in San Juan. He asked the Bradleys to pass on a message their daughter an invitation to go drinking on the shore in Aruba with him and some other crew members that evening. They later told Amy, who obviously declined. That might seem like a pretty harmless episode, a waiter with a tad too much confidence and no sense of decency shooting his shot with a passenger. But in retrospect, Ivor and Ron saw it in a darker light. Could this have been an attempt to bait Amy off the ship and away from the safety of her family? Again... No, it just sounds like this dude wants to go out drinking with this girl. That, I mean, Occam's razor on that one, I would say. Let's see. It's a pretty hefty accusation to throw around based on a bit of uncomfortable flirting, but there are certain signs which point to this as a possibility. For example, you'll remember that the family had their pictures taken on the way into the restaurant that night. Those pictures were printed out and set up for sale at a stall alongside images of other guests. Strangely, Ron discovered later that night that all of the pictures featuring Amy had mysteriously disappeared. 
Now that is a bit weird. The photographer definitely remembered printing them out, which meant that somebody had swiped them when nobody was looking. To the Bradleys, this was potentially a sign that their daughter had been singled out. They suspected that someone on board the ship, perhaps the bassist, perhaps a waiter or a conspiracy of them all, was planning to drug and kidnap their daughter and then sell her into sexual slavery. Okay, now that just seems a lot. I mean, I can believe, okay, someone's going to kidnap her, but the bassist and the waiter are in cahoots to do it. Seems a little bit unlikely, doesn't it? Now, I know this shit just went from 0 to 100 extremely fast, but unfortunately, we haven't even got started yet. Oh, good lord. Really? We, I, I really feel like we're at 100 on this one. It's like, yeah, no, no. She didn't slip off the thing. The waiter and the bassist from the ship's band got together. They tried to lure her off the, stri- off the ship using, uh, after seeing her photographs and then sell her into sexual slavery. That is 100. <laughs> right there, Callum. <laughs> The Caribbean Human Trafficking Ring Central to the biggest and most troubling theory behind the disappearance of Amy Lynn Bradley is a kind of urban legend passed around the ports of the Caribbean's idyllic holiday islands. The story goes that pretty young tourists are the favorite prey of a prolific gang of human traffickers. Steve Reeves, the editor of a cruise line trade magazine, wrote about the case saying, There's rumor and legend surrounding slavery in the Southern Caribbean. It's not uncommon knowledge in the maritime community that young white women are considered to be very desirable to foreign procurers. A report from a witness in Curacao seemed to suggest that Amy might have been their latest prey. Shortly after the family returned from St. Martin, a taxi driver in Curacao came forward to report that he was approached by a woman matching Amy's description who asked to borrow his phone, then ran away. Later still, a Puerto Rican police cadet claimed that he saw her being forced into a taxi by a strange man in a baseball cap. In the light of these revelations, any unwanted male attention which Amy received on that cruise seems potentially dangerous in retrospect. Amy's mother, Iba, certainly thinks so. He told People magazine, Amy would have been a trophy. Amy would have been someone that, I believe, could have been picked out and fingered to move off of that ship. She could have been held and hidden. She could have been possibly drugged and taken from that ship. It may sound somewhat far-fetched, especially given all the unnecessary risks these hypothetical traffickers would have faced, but the narrative seems to be the one that has caught on the most. So, are the Bradleys just grasping at straws, unable to accept the tragedy of their daughter's untimely death, or is there some substance to the theory? Okay, my uh, my little uh, monitor, whatever I called it, the sliding scale. Now nah, it's like down at 70, I'd say. It, it Just the conspiracy and the kidnapping, it just seems unnecessary when I'm sure, like, isn't Puerto Rico's like part of the US? I'm sure there's like way easier ways to kidnap like young white women than off a cruise line, which just seems like way more risky than just off the streets of a Caribbean island. But... Yeah, like I say, just push it down to 70% sure that she fell off the boat. Anyway, let's move on. I would kind of discount the, you know, the sightings and stuff because eyewitness testimony is famously unreliable, especially these people have never seen her before. They've just seen photographs. Nah. The first potential sightings. Upon returning to Virginia, Amy's parents turned their home study into a makeshift command center. Ivor established a hotline and sat by the phone for most of the day, while Ron set up maps and charts of all the possible sightings of Amy. It wasn't long before some interesting leads started coming in. One of the first substantial reports came five months after the ill-fated trip. In August 1998, a Canadian IT worker named David Carmichael and his friends had been vacationing in Curacao, where they had a strange encounter. A woman, flanked by two rough-looking blokes, was walking down to the beach. When she spotted the Canadians, she made out as if she was about to talk to them before being shushed by her escorts. One of the men glared at the tourists, and the group continued on out of sight. It wasn't until David returned to Canada and saw a report about Amy Lynn Bradley on TV that he made full sense of the encounter. He was sure it was her, and his description was spot on, even down to her distinctive tattoos. A Tasmanian devil on her left shoulder, a blue gecko on her navel, Chinese character on her ankle, and the Japanese sun on her back. By the time the FBI returned to the island to follow up on the claims, the woman was nowhere to be found. Fast forward to 1999, when an American Navy officer claimed that he had contact with Amy in a Curacao brothel. The unnamed sailor was approached by a woman who he noticed clearly wasn't a local. She identified herself by name and begged him for help. All he did was tell the woman where his ship was docked and continued on with his evening. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> you what are you up to? Add to that the fact that it took three years for the scumbag to report this incident because he was scared of the repercussions if he admitted that he was spending his art where he was spending his R and R time. Priorities, people. Yes, and also, my dude, you can anonymously tip people off. It's not that hard. 
It wasn't until the sailor retired that he contacted the Bradleys through their website, but by that point, the building he directed to them had burned down long ago. A Daring Rescue While the Navy sailor with a pension for prostitutes was sitting on that potentially case-breaking lead, an even more promising one found its way to the command center's inbox. The Bradleys received an email from professional mercenary Frank Jones. He was an ex-Marine commanding a squad of experienced military veterans. This was exactly the kind of person they needed. Frank was following up on one of the most recent tips. A cook named Judith Margaretha had claimed that she knew where Amy was being held. Margaretha said that she regularly saw Amy in her neighborhood, grocery shopping under the watchful eye of her captors. These were a gang of ruthless Colombian traffickers holed up in a fortified compound nearby. She gave an accurate description of the missing woman and even hummed a lullaby down the line, which Ivor had sung to Amy when she was a little girl. That was all the proof she needed. Ivan knew her daughter was in that housing complex kept captive behind bars and barbed wire. Unfortunately, Ron was no Liam Neeson, so they'd need to bring in some outside help to gun down the kidnappers and save the day. This is going this... <laughs> Okay, I take back about saying we were already at 100 gallon. Now it's like we're going to raid a Colombian... Colombian? Yeah, Colombian drug traffickers' den or compounds and rescue a girl. This is like... Liam Neeson taking shit right here. This is now at 300. The FBI was no help. They told Eva that without any hard and fast evidence, there was little the local police could do. A tip-off from some random woman was hardly enough for a search warrant, especially when there was no definitive proof that she was even kidnapped in the first place. Also, this isn't going on in America. Isn't this in... Was this Curacao or Colombia or somewhere where the FBI doesn't have jurisdiction? <laughs> That's when gung-ho action man Frank Jones swaggered in. He offered to take on the challenge, sending a reconnaissance mission to the island to follow up on the report. Jones's A-team staked out the locations identified by the cook and laid in wait. After a few days, they caught sight of a woman in the passenger seat of a dark green SUV driven by the same blonde-haired guard described by Margarita. One of the operatives tailed the car back to the compound and observed more armed guards watching the entry points. They coordinated watching the compound for the next few days until they were spotted. Around 10 of the Colombians opened fire on the recon team, who, ba who barely made it out alive. If that wasn't proof that they had got the right place, nothing was. The team had to tread more carefully going forward, observing the gang from a distance and making sure they never moved Amy to another location. If that happened, they were going to lose her forever. Months of watching and waiting passed by before Frank Jones told the Bradleys they couldn't hold off any longer. It was time to strike. Before agreeing to his plan, Ivor and Ron asked one last piece of information that they really had located Amy, something you should probably always do before sending people in to attack a Colombian drug cartel den. Yes. Also, this guy is insanely brave. I've seen narcos. You don't want to attack those dens. Jones presented the newest reconnaissance picture, a photo from a beach in Curacao of Amy and her blonde chaperone. Ivor Bradley recalled, When I got the pictures, I knew Amy was okay, and it was just a matter of time. Wow, so is she really alive and okay? I'm still I know this is a mystery, so we probably don't actually find out in the end. But if all of this is actually accurate information, then it seems she she's still alive. Which is well, I was wrong. But I'm not sure I'm wrong yet. I get the feeling Callum might be leading me down a little path of uh, maybe this isn't as reliable as we think. So the family all flew down to Florida in anticipation. Ron's employer even loaned them a private jet to get down from Curacao as soon as the good news came in. Days went by, waiting for the green light. Then a week, still no news. It was then that the Bradleys received a call, but not the one they were expecting. Ex-Special Forces sniper Tim Barkholtz managed to get through to the couple. It was him that was posted on the property down in Curacao, watching the comings and goings of those evil Colombian kidnappers. Or rather, oh, it's a con, isn't it? It's going to be a con. Here, they're paying these Special Forces guys, and there is no compound. There is no girl. It's just all faked. And they're taking them for a ride. For money. This is the shittiest thing that someone can do. You are Please don't tell me it's that. But I have a strong feeling it's going to be that. Ah. Please don't be this. Or rather, watching a perfectly normal couple go about their business day after day. That's right, Buckholz revealed to the family that everything Jones had told them was a lie. When he was sent down to check out the housing compound, he found it wasn't occupied by a Colombian cartel at all, and that really should have been the end of the mission. However, the veteran sniper one day overheard his boss speaking to the Bradleys and realized that he was selling them a wild fantasy. Operation Stare into the windows of some random locals was being spun into a Hollywood thr thriller with a bankroll to match. Over the course of the bogus reconnaissance mission, Jones had collected a grand total 
total of $210,000 in funding. About $24,000 came from the couple's own pocket, with $186,000 provided by the nation's missing children as the organization. The Soldier of Fortune was just a regular, everyday scammer. No, he's not a regular, everyday scammer. A regular, everyday scammer is someone who like, picks your pocket or some shit like that. This guy is a world-class and also so not only is he leading this family on and taking all their money but he's also taking money from a charity that is responsible for finding children and with less money they'll find less children this guy if there was a hell that is where he is going but what about the images of Amy and her captor? As it turned out, the woman in the photograph wasn't even her. Jones had paid another of his team members, Joan O'Sank, to wear a blonde wig next to some random woman who was done up to look like missing Amy. The elaborate scam was almost as intricate as the actual rescue operation Jones claimed to be planning. Not least because he wasn't even ex-military himself, yet he managed to sell the lie down to the authentic ex-serviceman that he hired for the job. In the end, Frank Jones pled guilty to mail fraud charges in April 2002, and was sentenced to five years behind bars in order to pay back the money that he swindled from the family and the foundation. Good. Five years feels like a nice, solid sentence. You'd be like, oh, I just scammed someone. It's like, no, no, no. You're getting the absolute maximum penalty because you're a horrific person. Allegedly. If you've not already guessed, the report sent in by the cook Margarita was also a complete fraud. Her own son even told the press as much, revealing that she was paid $8,000 for the tip. When the woman herself was pressed for comment, she said, Maybe I'm a bad person, but with all my badness, I want Mrs. Bradley really to find her girl. Wait, that's great. Thank you, Margarita, you hero. Never mind the Margarita. Keep those hashtag thoughts and prayers coming, and we'll all forgive you. I mean, she got, she just took the money. I mean, it's a horrible thing to do, but I mean, she's not as bad as the, the main scamming dude, but it's still a pretty sh thing to do, isn't it? Later sightings. Let's conduct a quick poll before we continue. Is it more depressing that A. People are willing to kidnap other humans and sell them for profit, or that is a very high bar, Callum? <laughs> I'm very curious as to what B is going to be. B. People are willing to manipulate the emotions of grieving parents for profit. Um, I don't think... I mean, <laughs> the answer is like, well, they're both terrible, but I do think the people who are doing slavery rather than just conning grieving people are worse people. I think I can, I can, I think it's fair to say that. Like the con man is bad and I'm glad he got five years in prison, but the people who are like kind of doing modern slavery, um, that's worse. That is worse. They're both horrible. A is worse. <laughs> I can't imagine a poll would disagree with me. <laughs> Uh, it's a trick question. The answer is both. Well, yes, that's true. But in a poll, you've got to choose, you know. There's no C for both. Most importantly, for the time being, option B proves that we have to take any tips which come in through the Bradley family's website and hotline with a pinch of salt. From the outset, they were offering a massive reward of $250,000 to anyone who could help locate their daughter. And as we've already seen, the desperate parents are willing to purchase any sliver of hope for thousands of dollars. Let's keep that in mind so we maintain a healthy amount of skepticism going forward, because what came next was one was some of the most compelling evidence yet. In 2005, a woman named Judy Mora filed a report with investigators claiming she had spotted Amy Lynn Bradley. She was in the restroom of a department store in Barbados when a woman matching the missing persons report walked in, escorted by three men. Miss Mora overheard the men threatening the women, referencing a deal that she was trying to back out of. On the way out the door, the woman was able to snatch a second alone with Mora, revealing that her name was Amy and she came from Virginia. That was all she could get out before the men grabbed her by the arms and dragged her away. Mora provided enough details for a group of sketches, but these ended up leading nowhere. Uh, I don't think that's particularly compelling evidence. Am I, am I wrong? One of the sketches has become a particular favorite among internet sleuths, that of a balding man with shades and a beard. Oh no. <laughs> For those of you not watching this and don't know what I look like, I'm a bald man. <laughs> I don't have shades on, but I do wear glasses and I also have a beard. It's been compared to various people involved in the case, including our old friend Alistair Yellow Douglas. But honestly, the, I think the sketches are so basic and shoddy that you could mistake them for any number of people. I'm pretty sure I've met them in a pub or smoking area at some point, but I'm not about to go to the cops. Thank you, Callum. I feel like, I know this guy. I, I, I do this casual criminalist for him. He, he's bald, he's got a beard, and he kidnapped a woman. <laughs> no, Callan, please. It's not me. Amy isn't in my basement. 
If, like me, you think that one has the faint whiff of a cynical money grab, then the next piece of evidence might be more up your alley. Again in 2005, the Bradleys received an email from someone who claimed they could break the case wide open. It was a bittersweet promise because the evidence they provided was a set of pictures from a website which advertised prostitutes in the Caribbean. The pictures showed a woman named Jass lying on a bed in various stages of undress and in sexual poses. Now, I'm not about to tell you to search for the photos, but suffice to say they bear a pretty unbelievable resemblance to the missing woman, Amy Lynn Bradley. Take away the long, back-combed hair, and the person in the picture is pretty much a dead ringer for her. This seems like the ultimate evidence that Amy had in fact been sold into slavery. All of the false reports, shoddy investigating, and wasted time must have let the traffickers slip under the radar for all of these years. For the Bradleys, the images were irrefutable. They even had them verified by an ex-FBI expert who was certain that Jess and Amy were one and the same. That means that she's still out there, trapped in a life of miserable captivity, hoping that one day someone might come and save her. Isn't that entirely fakeable? I feel like with Photoshop and stuff, and the problem is when you give such a when the they're willing to pay out so much, it really motivates people to go out and fake this stuff. And this doesn't sound like non-fakeable. Trouble on the high seas. If Amy Lynn Bradley really was the victim of a terrifying plot at sea, she wouldn't be the first. There is a long precedent for all kinds of terrible happenings on luxury cruise liners. The 90s and early 2000s were almost like a Wild West period for the industry, with little international oversight and ships registered in foreign nations. That's important because if a vessel is registered in Liberia, then it's up to Liberian authorities to investigate, and they tend not to be quite as diligent as the FBI. It's like, yeah, people I'd want investigating a case. I'd be like, well, like, you'd see the movies, FBI. FBI, they always seem extremely competent, they wear suits, they show up, they have an enormous budget. Whereas Liberia, I'm not even sure where it is. And you know, whatever the Liberian FBI equivalent is, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know them. I want the FBI. (laughs) Please. One of the most public tragedies that happened on these luxury party boats included the disappearance of a man named George Smith IV who took a tumble over the balcony outside his RCI ship suite in 2005. It wasn't until years later that his family discovered that some fellow passengers were seen with him and reportedly stated, We gave that guy a paraguiding lesson without the parachute. However, no arrests were ever made. Dude, did they? Some other passengers on the ship reported... They just admitted to murder? What is going on? That is, um, I don't, I almost don't believe it. Stories like this are pretty terrifying. Add in a host of uninvestigated sexual assaults, and these ships are starting to look more like actual pirate ships, just with marginally less alcohol and scurvy. I don't know about less alcohol, but less scurvy for sure. Things are admittedly a bit better these days after the US Congress started piling the pressure on cruise companies to get their sh- together and honestly it seems like it was about time and an organization called international cruise victims icv advocates on behalf of those whose lives were damaged by the companies and their diabolical lawyers ken carver founded it after his own daughter marion webster her name's really Miriam Webster, like the dictionary. That's amazing. When missing from a ship in August 2004, after which the operator put a gag order on all their employees and withheld vital evidence to protect themselves. I believe a gag order is a legal thing. You can't just you just tell your employees to shut up, right? Or did they actually get a legal gag order on their employees? That would be insane. <laughs> Carver believes that the same fate befalls a new victim once every two weeks. Good God, what is going on? I was like, after I made a video, like that video I t- talked about cruise ships on my mega projects, and I was like, they sound pretty great. Like, that sounds, I mean, I'm not old, so I don't particularly think I'll be going on a cruise anytime soon. And now I'm like, wait, <laughs> cruise sounds, they sound like pirate ships, like real life pirates. Congresswoman Doris Matsy is currently lobbying for even stricter regulations in order to bring these terrifying figures down. Until she succeeds, be sure to pack your musket and cutlass before heading off on that dream cruise vacation. As things stand. But what does all this mean for the main victim in today's episode? Let's take stock of exactly where the investigation is at 
and the potential scenarios that are still left open. First, Amy Lynn Bradley may well have jumped over the railing. The family were quoted as saying she would never commit suicide. Not to be callous, but I reckon that the vast majority of parents of suicide victims would say the same thing, given any chance to explain it away. I admit this scenario is not particularly likely, given her fear of the open ocean, but ultimately it can't be disproven. More interesting is the idea that she may have fallen in. The railing was chest high, but we do know that Amy was feeling a bit sick. It's why she stayed out on the balcony in the first place. She could have stood up on a piece of furniture to retch over the side and then slipped. Some reports do state that the FBI found marks on the railing suggesting someone sat on it, but if so, then how do we explain the potential sightings and the change of clothes? I think the sightings could be mistakes. I don't know about the change of clothes. Perhaps the most important theory is that she was pushed in. If the person who spotted her going up in the elevator after 5.30am was correct about what she saw, then we have to wonder what might have happened to Amy at that nightclub. It's not inconceivable that she was the latest victim of the sexual assault epidemic plaguing the cruise ships back then, and her attacker decided to silence her in the worst way possible. I would say these scenarios that have just been presented are by far the most likely. I wouldn't necessarily say suicide. It doesn't seem like the setup for that. Maybe the being sick and falling over the ledge, I would say, is possibly the most likely. And then shortly after that, the, uh, the, the sexual assault and murder. After that, we're really moving into fantastical waters. Let's return to the possibility of a kidnapping. We first have to wonder why the kidnappers would bother taking the risk of drugging and kidnapping an American tourist on board a ship with over 3,000 potential witnesses, especially when there's always a chance the ship would be sealed off in Curacao. Rather than entertain theories about shipwide conspiracies, we might assume she was coerced into leaving willingly and went ashore with her kidnapper when the gangplanks went down. Then that would explain the sightings in the days immediately after. However, we've already seen how the vultures started to swarm around this case as soon as a cash reward was announced and that makes it incredibly difficult to 100% trust any sightings. Agreed. Like, the eyewitness stuff, I've, like, just largely ruling out as anything useful here. How about the pictures, though? Oh yeah, on the website. You can't doubt something as plain and obvious as that, right? Well, some online sooths doubt the veracity of those images entirely. While some point out the similarities in jaw structure, forearm length, ear shape, eyebrows, and more, others claim to have proven that Jass is a completely different woman with a separate life that could be traced back to before Amy's disappearance. That would make sense, because if you, a professional human trafficker and one of the FBI's most sought-after missing people in captivity, why the hell would you post a picture online? Forget that. Why would you parade her around? the island in full view of Canadians and other Americans without even trying to hide her identifying marks. It's very possible that all of the human trafficking evidence is just the result of people, some well-meaning, some cynical, exploiting a family's desperation. Yeah, I am on that stuff. I mean, maybe you're with me, maybe you're not, but I think it's just people being exploitative. I think it's unreliable eyewitness testimony, this kind of stuff. No, not testimony, but reports, sorry. And the media were already well-primed to send these more sensational theories into overdrive. They play into long-standing fears over so-called white slavery, the old-school name for human trafficking, named so because of hysteria over the idea of white women being captured and enslaved in exotic destinations. As the Cruise Magazine editor said before, much of these stories are just rumor and legend. Human trafficking certainly exists in the Caribbean, but the role of white foreign victims is massively overstated. So there's just one theory left which we haven't touched on yet. What if Amy went willingly? Oh, yeah, I mean, we've it doesn't seem very likely, does it? Some have speculated that the fresh grad faced with the prospect of flying away from paradise to start a desk job at her uncle's company in Virginia decided to stay in the sunshine for good. To be honest, I reckon I'd probably take that trade. Yeah, except then real life kicks in and you realize, oh yeah, I gotta pay bills and I've got friends and I've got a family. I can't just stay in the Caribbean forever. It just, just, just no. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't think that's really realistic. Her family have flat out rejected the idea of her leaving without a word, but again, every family w would in that situation. I'd probably tend to agree, given the pain that the Bradleys went through. You'd think Amy would at least send them a sign, but the possibility remains open nonetheless. We're really stretching it now, aren't we? Whatever the case, Amy's family are dead set on the idea that she is still alive. They have vowed to one day find the people holding her captive and return their daughter home. She'd now be 46 years old. Amy was declared legally dead in absentia in 2010, and that same year, a new piece of evidence washed ashore. A tourist on the west side of Aruba stumbled across a human jawbone washed up on a beach, left with only one tooth. Analysis revealed that it belonged to a Caucasian woman, but it's never been definitively linked to Amy. Oh, I mean, the odds of this are pretty fractional, aren't they? 
If not her, then perhaps it could have provided some closure for one of the other dozen disappearances of female tourists in the Caribbean over the years leading up to the discovery, but we'll never know. This was the last potential lead, meaning that the case of Amy Lynn Bradley was, uh, will probably never be solved. Why can't we DNA test that jaw? Just DNA test the jaw, then DNA test the brother, because that would be our closest blood relative, and see if it matches up. Maybe they can't do it to a jaw? Maybe there was no... Do you need bone marrow and stuff for that? I'm sure there's a reason. It's 2010. They would have done it if they could. Wrap up. Or maybe I'm dead wrong. Maybe you know exactly what happened to Amy Lynn Bradley all those years ago, and we've been sitting on a bombshell all these years. Or maybe you're currently listening in from Curacao and just caught sight of a woman strolling down the beach. If so, then you'll want to contact the FBI right away. They're still actively searching for Amy and released age-progressed photos within the past few years. They're offering $25,000 as a reward, and the $250,000 offered by the Bradleys stands as well. But please, if you're just another cash-strapped mercenary wannabe with a talent for BS, stay away from this one. The family has already taken more torments than one should endure in a lifetime. Agreed. At the time of her disappearance, Amy was 5'6", 120 pounds, with short brown hair and green eyes. The tattoos were a Tasmanian devil on her left shoulder blade, blue gecko lizard around her navel, Chinese symbol on her right ankle, Japanese sun tattooed on her lower back. The last thing to consider is that these shady underworlds do exist under the surface of our dream holiday destinations. Each jurisdiction will have its own hotlines for reporting human trafficking, and amazingly, you don't have to wait months or years to sound the alarm, despite what today's witnesses might tell you. It's not all doom and gloom, because the Caribbean authorities are making progress against real traffickers. Back in 2018, an amazing 350 victims were rescued. Wow, that is some job they're doing mostly hailing from South America and the Caribbean. Of course, Amy Lynn Bradley was not among them. Here's hoping that her family one day get the closure they've been craving all these years. Whatever happened to her? This has got to be the hardest part of it all. Like, not knowing? I mean, I always think of that, uh, what was it? Um, the little girl who was kidnapped or just disappeared. Madeline McCann. And it's, good lord, the torment as the parents and the family of that girl... Or, like, same in this situation, it's got to be so intense. Like, I don't even like to think about it. I'm a dad, and I'm like, that, no, I don't even like to think about it. Dismembered Appendices. Number one. In 2017, the bass player Yellow came under renewed scrutiny for a pretty silly reason. A video surfaced online which showed him dancing with Amy at the Calypso party, shot as promotional materials for the cruise. It didn't exactly prove anything other than the fact that Yellow was a horrific dancer, but the fine folks of the true crime community decided to start brigading, uh, decided to start brigading him once again. Number two. In 2015, a Florida man named Alfred Carton was jailed along with his wife for running a Caribbean sex tourism website. They went down on trafficking charges, sparking theories that they were on board the Rhapsody of the Seas back in 1998. One of the police sketches from the department store even looked a bit like him. Probably, though, this is just a classic bit of conspiracy theory fodder. If you want to throw yourself down the rabbit hole for a laugh, be my guest. But we're not going to on this show because that is just too far down the conspiracy rabbit hole and it seems like it's not true. This has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. I do hope you... This was a long one. I do hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you know what to do. If you're watching on YouTube, hit that like button below. Make sure you're subscribed to this show because we put out brand new stuff twice per week. We do a long episode like this, then we do a little shorter one where it's like, ah, okay, we didn't really find enough information. So we have long and short once, one each per week. Make sure you're subscribed. If you are uh, listening to this show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever, if you can leave a review, please do. I checked them before I watched this. Uh, I had a little break halfway through to get more coffee. You won't have known that because I paused the recording. We got a thousand reviews, which is amazing. <laughs> the show's only been going for a few months. I mega appreciate it. If you haven't left a review yet, please do. That would be amazing. And uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. I'll see you next time. <laughs>